0: Last week, John the Revelator, the author, the human author of this book, introduced us to the unholy trinity. If you were with us, we talked about Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and how they are working together to bring destruction and harm to the world. We read about Satan falling from grace in heaven, about a world leader that will rise up and at first he will seem like a savior type figure, like a a a powerful political leader who can bring peace into situations where there has always been war, but eventually uh, his true colors will show that he too wants to bring destruction to the world and he is an evil dictator. And he also has his false prophet, which is like his hype man, pointing all the world towards him saying, this is your true salvation, when in reality he is the Antichrist. We ended last week. By talking about the fact that even though there truly are evil forces in this world as followers of Jesus we do not need to live in fear of those things we don't need to live in fear of the devil or his minions because he is not the equal opposite of God he is nothing but a gnat who annoys God and God will put an end to him ultimately sorry spoiler alert if you haven't read the book but we do keep our eyes on what is happening because speaking of 1 Peter, Peter tells us that Satan is like a roaring lion prowling the world seeking that which he can devour. He desires to keep you from living a life that brings glory to God and he desires to keep the people that you love that don't know Jesus yet from coming to know Jesus. He wants to bring destruction into this world, but... He is nothing in comparison to the glory and power of our Lord. And so we don't have to sit around just twiddling our thumbs and being afraid of what's going to come. We know that God will win. Today we're going to read chapter 14 of Revelation, which is kind of a part of an interlude. There's this timeline that goes on through Revelation as we build towards the very end of the world. And then in chapters 14, 15, and part of 16, there's kind of this break that gives us an interlude, and it's talking about what's going to happen before it happens. And so it's kind of a, a precursor to what's actually going to take place at the end of the book. And so it gives us a brief overview of what's to come. And chapter 14, interestingly, starts with a song. I don't know if you guys are like me, but music is really powerful to most people. As most of you have probably noticed, there's some song or maybe many songs that just kind of hit you in the feels a certain way. Uh, maybe, maybe you love listening to Taylor Swift because you got broken up with one time and it just brings you back to there and you're like, I don't need no man, like whatever it is. Those breakup songs. Or I'm not usually a super emotional person at all, but there are, are a couple songs that talk about not having your parents growing up, being abandoned by a parent. And I, I have never made it through the song Father of Mine by Everclear without crying, ever. And I've heard it a thousand times. My wife loves the song, the worship song, that I'm sure you've all heard, Oh, How He Loves by John Mark McMillan. Not just because it's a great worship song, it, it is. But as her mother was dying of cancer, for those last few months of her life, that was the song that her mother wanted her to sing over her. And so it was just an incredibly powerful song in her life, not just because it's a worship song, but because of everything that it's connected to, because there are events in her life, there are events in my life or your life that connect you to a song. There's something that God has done in us that connects us to music like that. Our experiences make us understand a song that's written from a point of view that we understand maybe better than anybody else can understand it. The best explanation of this, I think, is the the Negro spirituals that Slaves in America wrote. Nobody can really understand those songs unless they have lived that life. And so they sing songs like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, Coming Forward to Carry Me Home. If you haven't endured that type of life, you're not going to feel that song the same way that they are. Or they say outright, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Because we don't. But that connection to that, because of the life that they've lived, is deep. And In the first part of Revelation 14, we're going to see a group that is singing a song that can only be truly understood by a select group of people. So if you have a Bible or your device or whatever it is, Please open to Revelation chapter 14, and we're going to read just the first five verses to start. Then I looked, this is John speaking, the Revelator. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, capital L, this is Jesus. And with Him, 144,000, who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. So these 144,000 people that we met all the way back in Revelation chapter 7, And they are the people that God has given this unique call that in the tribulation time of the world, they will be the great evangelists that are pouring forth the gospel all over the world. And this group of people that I I believe is literally Jewish believers, Messianic Jews, some people would say this is the church, there's different ideas there, and that's okay, we can have different ideas. But this group of people have lived through some truly horrific things. They have watched the seven trumpet judgments of God that have fallen upon the earth that we talked about. They have watched the two witnesses of God come to the world, preach the gospel, be killed, brought back from the dead, and go back to God. And they have watched as the Antichrist has risen to power in the world and pulls people away from the Lord. I can't even begin to understand all that they are going through Suddenly there is a song that breaks forth from heaven and only those 144,000 can learn this song. Not literally, not that nobody else can hear the words, but they understand it. They understand this praise of God in a way that maybe nobody else can because they have been sealed by God, called by God to preach the gospel in the darkest time in world history. And this verse tells us that they are standing upon Mount Zion, which if you were a Jewish reader of Scripture, would immediately hit you because the Scriptures have been talking since back in Genesis about how the people of God would stand upon Mount Zion in victory. And so for them, this is fulfillment of prophecy and Scripture, and they find great joy in it. They also, we read, have the names... Of the Lamb and the Father written on their forehead. Did you catch that? We spend all kinds of time talking about the mark of the beast, but we skip over there's a mark of God upon these people. We should pay way more attention to that, shouldn't we? That God puts his mark upon his chosen people. And the beast, Satan, doesn't do anything original. Do you know that? Everything that he does is a twisted version of something God does because he wants to be worshipped like God, but he never will be. And so when he comes out with his mark, it's just a twisted variation of what God is already doing. They have been redeemed by God as the first fruits of all mankind. This is God's tithe to himself, the first fruits. And it says that they are truthful and blameless. Not sinless. Don't misread that. They're blameless because they are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because their sin has been taken away. They're normal men. The stuff that talks about even there about them being virgins, that, that word can actually mean chaste as well. And so these might not be literal virgins, but they are men who have not hoarded themselves into this world religion of prostitution and all that's going on. They have been chaste and given themselves to the Lord but they are simple men that God has called to a greater calling. So then we come to the next section, verses 6 through 13. Read with me. We're going to read about three angels who have messages for the earth. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. And Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, "'Followed them, saying with a loud voice, "'If anyone worships the beast and its image "'and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, "'he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, "'poured full strength into the cup of his anger, "'and he will be tormented with fire and suffer "'in the presence of the holy angels, "'in the presence of the Lamb, "'and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, "'and they have no rest. "'Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image.' And whoever receives the mark of its name, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow him. So we have these three angels, and they bring three different messages And the first angel comes as a preacher. He comes as a preacher to the entire world. And this is unique because up until this point in all of biblical history, an angel has never been the preacher of the gospel. They have told other people, go listen to this person. They have pointed to the gospel, but an angel has never preached the gospel. That has been the blessing of mankind. But now there's this angel in the end times, and he has a message for the entire world. It says he's in the sky, and in the Greek language, it's actually, he's in the noon day where the sun reaches his, its pinnacle, the highest point. This is where this angel is, and so this angel can be seen all over the world somehow. This angel is preaching the gospel to all who dwell upon the earth, And that language is used in Revelation to talk about unbelievers. People that don't know Christ. All who dwell upon the earth. That means they make their dwelling, not just their home, but their dwelling where they are comfortable, on the earth. And he's preaching this gospel. And this is so key. Because you've probably heard this many times. When people say, what about those who have never heard the gospel? What about that pygmy tribe somewhere that has never heard the gospel and God says there will be nobody who has not heard the gospel. I will literally send an angel over the entire earth to proclaim the truth to give everybody a chance to understand who Christ is. So he preaches this gospel and the angel makes it clear He's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and he says, fear God and give Him glory because time is almost up. This angel is letting people know here's the gospel, here's the truth and you need to understand your chances are dwindling. You need to fear God, not creation because He is the Creator. And only He can bring you into glory. And then the second angel comes not as a preacher of the good news, but as a bearer of the bad news for the entire world's system that the judgment of God is coming. He declares that Babylon will be falling. Babylon represents in Revelation this whole empire that the Antichrist and the beast and and, and the false prophet, Satan, that they're going to set up, this whole new world order that is political and economic and religious. The angel comes and says, all of this that is built upon this Babylon idea is going to fall. Just as the original Babylon in Genesis 10 was started by an arrogant leader named Nimrod who thought that he could be his own God, so the new Babylon will be started by this arrogant, prideful, antichrist who believes that he can be his own God and he has people around him that believe that they can be their own gods. And just like in Babylon the first, they build the temple, they build the the tower, the ziggurats because they think that they can build themselves up to God and some Bible scholars even think what they had in their head was they can build a temple up to God and then fight God. Can you imagine the arrogance Be like, I'm gonna fight God. This is exactly what the Antichrist is doing. And he builds an entire world system around this idea. And the angel says, It's all going down. The third angel, his message, is not for the system, but for the people. Third angel's message is tough. His message is that judgment will fall upon all the people of the world who bow down and worship the beast. Those who embrace the Antichrist and join his kingdom, they join his economy. And this is a terrifying message and a warning to all of the people who are still dwelling upon the earth at the time that if they take the mark of the beast, if they worship the Antichrist, if they give in and abandon the Lord, throwing everything in with the devil, that the fool Undiluted wrath of God will fall upon them. Undiluted. Did you notice that? Back in those times, there wasn't a lot of clean water, and so they would they would water down wine to make it drinkable. And so a lot of the wine was barely wine. But when God says this, he says, This is this is the full wrath, the undiluted wrath of God. Now I want to say I don't I don't believe that anybody is going to take the mark of the beast by accident. I've talked to people, and they, they're fearful, and they say, what if it's social security numbers? It's not. What if it's a credit card? It's not. Right? They, they think that somehow they're going to accidentally throw in with the devil. I really don't believe that's what it's going to be like. When this time of the world comes, there is going to be an intentional choice people will have to say, I am choosing to reject God and I am throwing in with the prince of this earth. And they will make that choice and they will have to live with what comes from that. Now, like I said before, I think, as I read Revelation, the church, the believers of Christ, are long gone by this time. But even if they're not, even if we're still here in the midst of that time, God is not going to allow the devil to just trick us into following him. There's going to be a clear choice to make. And all of these angels' messages lead to the next section, verses 14 through 20. And 14 through 20 are a very famous couple of sections that talk about the great harvest upon the earth. Verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud And seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat upon the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out from the temple of heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar, and the angel who had authority over fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth. And threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for sixteen hundred stadia, which is about two hundred miles. Now, I am in no way shape or farm. Farm. No way, shape or form a farmer. Now you see what I was trying to say. Dave Boss can laugh at me. I am not a farmer. I am a city boy as they come. But I did work for a farmer for a little while, towing sugar beets to a factory. And I think I know this. When it's harvest time, the farmers aren't still out in the field with one little plant going, come on, buddy, you can do it. You can grow. No, it's harvest time. It's time to go, because the plants that are going to grow to maturity have done so. And this is what this section of 14 is telling us. It is harvest time, and the Lord is coming to reap the harvest that He sowed the first time that He came. The first time that He came, He was meek and mild and humble, a baby, a servant, giving people the spiritual nutrients that they needed to grow. But when He comes back, He will be a powerful, mighty, sovereign king with a sharp sickle in his hands, ready to reap the harvest that he has planted. Now there's some debate amongst Bible scholars, theologians, of what exactly this section means, but I'm going to share with you what I, th- what I think it's saying. The first part is talking about the grain harvest. If you notice that, there was two different harvests going on here. The first was grain, and the second was grapes. Jesus comes on a cloud with a sickle in his hands and the angel comes and tells him that it's time to reap the harvest, that it's finally ripe and ready. And that struck me as funny initially. Why does an angel need to tell Jesus what to do? Why does an angel need to tell Jesus when the harvest is ready? Well, maybe you've read Mark 13. When Jesus is talking to his disciples about this End of the world time. And he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So Jesus tells his disciples, I don't even know. Now how does that work when Jesus is God and God is, I don't know. I could try to explain the Trinity to you for the next hundred years and fail. I don't know. But somehow, Jesus doesn't even know when the time is until this angel comes from the Lord and delivers the message. Jesus, it's time. Reap the harvest. And so Jesus reaps the harvest of those who, I believe this harvest are those who have come to know him during this tribulation time. All of those who will come to know Christ are reaped at this time. But then there's this second harvest. And this harvest is a grape harvest. One that you might call the grapes of wrath. And in this harvest, an angel comes out from the temple of God with a sharp sickle. And another angel comes from the altar in the temple. And if you remember back earlier in Revelation, somebody else was near the altar, underneath the altar. It was the martyrs. Crying out to God, how long, O Lord, must we wait? Now God is answering this. The angel goes and he goes to the first angel that has the sickle. And he says, it is time. And that angel takes his sickle and gathers the harvest. But these are the grapes of wrath who have rejected the gospel. Despite all of the ways that God has made clear. The Gospel of Jesus Christ to them, despite even sending an angel to the highest of heavens to proclaim the gospel over all of the earth, there are still those who have rejected him, and they are trodden upon, and blood flows as high as a horse bridle for two hundred miles. and I don't think that's a literal there's so much in this book that's symbolic, but if you can just think about if you've ever seen a video of people in a wine press, this whole thing is talked about in God's great wine press of wrath. Have you seen people, maybe the old uh, I Love Lucy videos? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or whatever it is. Have you seen people in a wine press just smashing grapes with their bare feet? And the grape juice flies up and gets all over them as high as maybe a horse's bridle. And God is speaking about these people who have rejected and followed evil and chosen the devil. He says they will be trodden upon like grapes in God's great winepress of wrath. This is difficult for us. Because we love talking about the love of God. I do. We love talking about how amazing God's love is. Because it is. He did everything He could possibly do to get the gospel in front of every human being in the world. But just like God is perfectly loving, He is also perfectly just. And if people choose again and again and again to reject His love and mercy and stay in their sin and rebel against God, they will be judged accordingly in the end. I'm going to finish today by bringing up another song and it's very different than the worship songs that I started talking about. And you can laugh at me and that's okay. In 1996, Tupac Shakur was one of the greatest rappers in the world. And he came out with a song called Only God Can Judge Me. And this led to many people getting really stupid tattoos that are really poorly done in someone's garage that say only God can judge me and often misspelled or just dumb. And people would get these tattoos and the, the point of them, the point for Tupac was he was telling everybody, I don't care what you think. I'm just going to be judged by God. This song is basically a way of basically telling everyone, stay out of my business. And so many people took this whole idea upon themselves. They said, yeah, only God can judge me. I don't care what you think. It was thrown around frivolously all the time. But there's two massive problems with this idea. This is not my original idea, just so you know. But there's two massive problems. Number one, everyone's judging you all the time. Whether we like it or not, people say, yeah, you're not supposed to judge. Yes, you are supposed to judge. We don't judge heaven and hell, but we judge everything else. We are called to be fruit inspectors. We are called to judge things. There was somebody who used to go to our church, and he, he had a problem with that. He said, I don't think we should judge people. I changed his mind in 60 seconds because he had two daughters. And I said, when some dude shows up trying to date your daughter, are you going to judge whether he's a worthy companion to your daughters? He's like, heck yeah. There you go. Everyone's judging everybody all the time. We are called not to judge people's value in the eyes of God. But we are judging all the time. Number two, and more importantly, even if this were true, even if God is the only one that can judge you, that should scare the hell out of you that doesn't just get thrown around frivolously. If you know that there is a righteous and holy God who created you and gave you life and gave you breath in your lungs and blood that pumps through your heart, if you know that He exists and His standard is perfection and you cannot enter into His presence while tainted by sin, and so if you're not cleansed by the blood of Jesus, you're lost. If you know all of that and you don't know Jesus, that should scare the hell out of you. It should not be something that we just frivolously throw around and say, ah, only God can judge me. God will judge you. God will judge me. And if I am not covered by the blood of Jesus, I am trodden in the winepress of God's wrath. It's not about being good enough. You can't be. You aren't a pretty good person. We are all sinners in need of the grace and mercy of God. We need Jesus, period, full stop. He's the only way that we're going to be redeemed by God. He's the only way that we're saved from the wrath. He's the only way that we one day are amongst these masses of people crying out praises to God in a way that we can only understand if we've gone through that. He is the only way that when God does judge us, we can be declared righteous because we are covered by His eternal grace and mercy. Now, you guys that know me probably know I don't love preaching fire and brimstone messages This is not normal. If you're a visitor, this is not who I am. (laughs) But it is because this is the Word of God. And I can't dance around it. I can't love you so much that I just say, hey, here's a nice, comfortable ride to hell. Because that's what so many people are doing now when they take the Word of God and they take out the rough edges and they just say, He's just loving. He is perfectly loving, He is amazing. He sends angels into the sky to proclaim his love and mercy, but he is just. And if you continue to say, I don't want your mercy, I don't want your grace, I don't want your gospel, then eventually he will say, Okay. And this is the case for everybody that we know. I'm from a family where there's almost no Christians. And they're lost And I think back to all the people I know and chances that I've had to share and maybe didn't or didn't do it well and I, it's not on me God's in control I'm not taking that but I just I want people to know the love and mercy of God because it is put before you willingly constantly it's your choice God, I thank you that you are loving and merciful. But God, I also thank you that you're just. Because if you're, if you're not just, you're not God. That's so hard for me to wrap my brain around because I want you just to be just loving and fluffy. And you're not because you're just and mighty and righteous. And I'm so glad that you are. God, would you help us to know that? And if some of us need to have the hell scared out of us, then would you do it? And if others of us in this room just need to know that you're loving and merciful and graceful because they've never known that, would you make that clear to them? God, I thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word today. Even though it's a difficult word, we can grow to know you better through. And if anybody in this room is listening to me, and says, I, I need to do something because right now I am on a path that leads to a winepress of wrath. And you wanna change that, then I would just invite you by yourself to pray something along the lines of this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness i believe you died for my sins and rose again from the dead i want to turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life i want to trust and follow you as my lord and my savior